few years ago, a man from Britain named Jack Reynolds passed away at the age of 108. And that, by itself, is a pretty great accomplishment. He lived to be 108 years old. That's incredible. But Jack set out to accomplish a whole lot more than that before he passed away. And for Jack, it all started back in 2014. Some of you may remember that that was the year where the ice bucket challenge was taken over the internet. That's where people were dumping buckets of icy water on themselves to raise awareness and to raise money for ALS research. Well, Jack participated in that when he was 102 years old. Many people believe that by doing that, he set the record as the oldest participant to do the ice bucket challenge. Well, that seemed to have stirred something up inside of old Jack, who decided that he was going to keep setting records, and he was going to keep doing it to raise money for charity. So a couple years later, when he was 104, Jack got his very first tattoo. Got a tattoo of his nickname and his date of birth, and when he did that, he set the world record for the oldest person ever to get their first tattoo. We decided that there was more that he could do, so when he turned 105, on his 105th birthday, he set the world record for the oldest person ever to ride a non-inversion roller coaster. That's a roller coaster that doesn't turn the rider upside down. But he decided he could do more than that. So the following year, when he was 106, he said the world record is the oldest individual to ride a zip line. But not to be outdone by that, a year later, when he was 107, he appeared in a British soap opera on TV, setting, you would guess, a world record as the oldest individual to have a supporting role on a TV show. And these aren't all the things that he did. He did other things in his final years. He took a ride in a Tiger Moth airplane. He wanted to drive a Formula One race car. He had all these things that he was doing. And by the time he passed away, Jack had four Guinness World Records under his belt and had earned the nickname from one news outlet of Britain's oldest daredevil. That was Jack Reynolds. And Jack, in what he clearly knew were his final years, did his best to make the most of them. And maybe some of us, as we hear a story like Jack's, we're thinking to ourselves, well, yeah. I mean, if I knew that I only had a few years left, I would probably live a little differently, too. And you know, there's a similar mindset, though, to that, that takes place among a lot of Christians today. There's this mindset a lot, uh, among a lot of Christians that says, uh, you know, I'll take my faith seriously later in life, when I get a little bit old. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll serve the Lord more when the kids are grown and gone. Or after I accomplish these life goals, then I'll give more faithfully to the Lord. Or when I retire, I'm going to be more dedicated. Or in my later years, I'll... Yeah, but, but the truth is we... We don't know how much time we have left in this life. And believers, we don't know when the Lord is going to call us home or, or when He might return for His people. We already should be making the most of our days. So what does that look like? Well, as we turn to Romans chapter 13 this morning, we're going to see some important things that we ought to be doing as Christians until we see Jesus. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Romans 13. We're going to start in verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, as always, I'd encourage you to use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 921 in those Bibles. Page 921, Romans 13. 
Now recently, as a little recap for ourselves, recently we've seen how we are supposed to act towards one another as Christians. Most recently we saw how we are to act as Christians towards the government. And now we are going to see how we should act until that day that we stand before our Lord and Savior. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, this is what we find. It says, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Let no debt remain outstanding. Now look, most of us at some point, we're going to have some financial debt in our lives, right? That, that car loan, that house loan, those student loans, whatever they might be. But the Christian life is not to be defined by financial debt. And why is that? Well, think back to what we saw last week in verse 7. We're supposed to pay what we owe others as Christians. We're supposed to be faithful to do that. Right? And that includes paying taxes to the government and paying our loans. The only continual debt that should define our lives is the debt to love others. And this is why. God's moral commands to us are lasting. That means that they never end. Love is what's necessary to continually fulfill those commands. Therefore, we need to continually love others. See, this love debt is never going to go away in our lives. That's because there will never be a day where we can say, I've done it. I've arrived. I've, I can stop loving people and obeying God. We can never say that in our lives. No, every day that we wake up, we must obey God. We must obey God in how we treat others, which means every day we are indebted to love one another, our fellow Christians, and to love those outside the family of Christ. And you see, if we love others, we will naturally fulfill God's law. We're going to fulfill his commands to how we treat other people. Paul gives a few examples of this. You see, if we love others, we're not going to commit adultery. And the one who commits adultery cares nothing for the one who has cheated on, and shows no care for the purity and the dignity of the one cheated with. No, no, no. Adultery is a selfish, impure, loveless act. Now, we shouldn't murder people. I get it. That's probably pretty obvious to all of us. That's the opposite of love. Hatred and selfishness drives us to murder. But if we're going to love and look out for others, we're not going to take their lives. We're not going to take their stuff either. We're not going to steal from them. Nor are we going to covet the things that they have. No, because in our love for them, we're going to rejoice in what God has given them. And these are just a sampling of the laws that are fulfilled when we continually love others. So believers, understand this. Until we see Jesus, we need to understand we have been called to be a loving people. We need to always remember that. We have been called to be a loving people. We need to be loving towards others so that we can be obedient to Jesus Christ. See, it's our lack of love for other people that leads us to do things like 
cheat and steal, covet, commit adultery, commit murder. More than that, it's a lack of love that leads to gossip, to lying, to assaulting others, to bitterness, to jealousy, to saying evil things. The list goes on and on. Lacking love leads to these sins, and that means that if these sins are in our lives, we are not loving people the way that we've been called to love people. Never forget, church, that Jesus said the greatest commandment, the greatest commandment, is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our entire being. He said the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, if we do these two things, if we live in a love for God and a love for people, we will fulfill God's love and how we act towards him and towards others. That love needs to define our lives. It needs to be evident in our lives. There's a story of a class of young elementary school kids who are learning to spell. They were learning to spell simple words. You know, pig, cat, dog, cow. And whenever the kids would spell the word, they would imitate the sounds that the animal made. And all the kids were having a fun time. And eventually the teacher turned to one young girl and said, Mary, can you spell the word love? Oh, Mary got excited. She said, yes. She got up. She didn't write anything down. She ran to her teacher, wrapped her arms around her, and kissed her teacher on the cheek. She said, that's how we spell love in my house. And all the kids laughed. And the teacher said, that's, that's nice. But do you know another way to spell love? And Mary said, yes. She ran to her teacher's desk where a bunch of books were spread out. She carefully started lining them up and putting the books in order. And Mary said, I spell love this way. I spell it by helping everybody who needs me. And that little girl understood what many of us forget, which is that love is seen in our actions. It's not just something we say. From time to time, when my oldest son does something intentionally that he knows he should not do, whenever I start to look at him and I get ready to say something, or perhaps Casey will, before we can get a word out, he'll say, oh, I love you. And we'll tell him we know that he loves us. We love him too. But we'll explain to him that he can show us that he loves us by listening to the things we've told him, by being obedient to what we've taught him. And I can't tell you how many times in those very moments that God has used those moments to convict my own heart and said, yes, Andrew, and you love me when you obey my commands. And you love people when you treat them the way I've commanded you to. Now, before we move on, there's another side to loving others that I also want us to recognize. Loving other people isn't just about withholding harm from them, but it's also about actively doing good towards them. We need to remember that. In other words, there are many things we've been commanded not to do to each other, but there's also things that we've been commanded to do for one another. For example, when it comes to the body of Christ, the church, we're supposed to encourage one another, build each other up. We've been commanded to have compassion on one another, pray for each other, serve one another, to gather together. These are some of the things we've been commanded to do. And for those outside the church, we've been commanded to be kind towards them, to pray for them, 
to forgive them even when they wrong us, and to share the gospel with them. Just as a few examples. But when we fail to do these things, we also fail to be the loving people that God has called us to be. Listen to what the Apostle Peter said. He said this in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter said, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. The end of all things, and ultimately our eternity with Christ, is close, believer. Knowing that we could be in the presence of the Lord at any moment, that should result in us living lives of godly love. Doing that will cover a multitude of sins. And there's more that we need to be doing as the end approaches. Look what Paul says in verse 11. Romans 13, verse 11, Paul writes this. says, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's behave decently as in the daytime. Not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and debauchery. Not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Until we see Jesus, believers, we also need to understand that we have been called to be awake and to be active in our faith. Remember that. We are supposed to be awake and active in our faith. That's important because there are a lot of spiritually lazy and sleepy Christians today. They move through life without any regard for the work of God's kingdom. They put their spiritual gifts up on a shelf and they refuse to, to use them. They don't pray or, or read their Bible except for maybe on special days like Sunday. When it comes to Sunday, they don't often spend time with the church because well, they've got other things going on. In fact, these are the individuals who wouldn't be known as Christians if they didn't profess it to others. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about how, you know, the Christians in the early church were recognized as followers of Jesus Christ because they lived different lives. It was obvious to their community that there's something different about these people. There's a letter written around 200 A.D., so during that time of the early church. It's known as the, the letter or the epistle to Diognetus. And in it, the author of this letter, he, he describes Christianity to an unbeliever. I want you to listen to what he writes. This is how the author described Christians at that time. He said, it's true that they, Christians, are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown, and still they are condemned. They're put to death, and yet they are brought to life. They're poor, and yet they make many rich. 
They're completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They're dishonored, and in their dishonor they are glorified. They're defamed and are vindicated. They're reviled, and yet they bless. When they are affronted, they still pay due respect. When they do good, they're punished as evildoers. Undergoing punishment, they rejoice because they're brought to life. They're treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies, and they are hunted down by the Greeks. And all the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their enmity. If we were to write a description of Christians today, would it sound like that? Would it even be similar to this? One pastor recently said, too many Christians trust God enough to take them to heaven, but not enough to guide their daily lives. Sadly, I think that seems to be a more fitting description of 21st century Christians in America. In other words, there are many Christians, we, all Christians, we want Jesus in eternity, but many Christians, they want to live their own way until eternity. Church, Paul said that now, now is the time to wake up and to live out your faith. Your salvation is nearer than it was the day that you gave your life to Jesus Christ. And what Paul means by that is that that moment when you step into eternity, into glory, well, it's getting closer. First, with every day, we need to understand that we draw nearer to that moment when Jesus returns for his people. You see, the Bible tells us that in the future there is going to be a great and terrible time of tribulation, unlike the world has ever seen. And at the end of that, Jesus will return in power and defeat his enemies, sit on the throne of David, and establish his earthly kingdom. And before all of that, the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to gather his people and rescue them before that time of tribulation in an event that we know as the rapture. Now, I wish that we had more time to go in depth into all these things this morning. But what you need to understand this morning is that all these things are drawing close. We don't know the exact time, but we know that we are much nearer to these than ever before. And second, even if we're not a part of these coming things, we know that every day we move closer to the time when our lives will end. That's just the reality. Believers, will we be ready for that moment when we stand before the Lord? We'll be able to rejoice knowing that we, we were faithful to him during our brief time here on the earth. On many occasions, Jesus challenged his followers to be prepared for his return. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Church, at any moment, we could be standing before the King of Kings. Are we ready for that? About a month ago, at a food bank, food pantry in England, the volunteers and the workers there were very surprised when they looked up and they saw that the King, King Charles, just walked in to the food bank and stopped by for a visit. That shocked a lot of them. They were shocked not just that he showed up, but then he walked around and he talked to every single one of them, introduced himself asked about them, spent time having a conversation with each of them. If the King of England was going to stop by your place of work, you'd probably be sure to show up on time that day. 
You might even, you might even get there a little bit early. You might make sure that you looked kind of nice before he got there. I mean, meeting a king is a pretty big deal. I'm sure most of us, we'd want to be prepared for that. And if that's how we would treat an earthly king, then how should we respond when it comes to us one day standing before the king of kings? For many Christians, that moment that we stand before Jesus is going to come suddenly. And we're going to be in his presence. And when I say that, I mean that not all of us are going to be blessed to lay in old age on our deathbed and slowly pass away. It's just not going to be the case for a lot of us. And I pray that when that moment comes, that this life ends, or the Lord calls us home and we stand before him, church, I pray that we wouldn't be standing there thinking to ourselves, oh, if only I had known that this was that moment. I would have been more faithful to the Lord. See, that day might catch us unaware, but let's not be caught unprepared to stand before our Savior. Sadly, a lot of Christians are. They're going to stand before Jesus and they will have little to show the King of Kings because they are not living their lives for him. Instead, they're living lives of sin and selfishness. Paul cautions us. He says it's time to wake up. And to that end, he says we need to put aside the deeds of darkness. All those sins that the world lives in, murder, adultery, lying, theft, cheating, gossip, hypocrisy, hatred, we need to resist those things. And to do that, we need to put on the armor of light, that spiritual armor that God provides his people to fight against temptation, to resist evil, to wage those spiritual battles. I'm going to encourage you to go home this week and read in Ephesians chapter 6 some of the details about that spiritual armor God provides for us. Because what this means is that God doesn't just command us to resist evil, believers. It means that he equips us to do that. And understand that the closer that you get to God, the more prepared you will be to fight against the enemy in this life. So we need to wake up. We need to gear up. We need to put that armor on that the Lord provides so that we can live his way. We need to behave decently, unlike this indecent time that we live in. These sins that Paul lists in these last few verses we read, carousing, drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, jealousy, all of these things belong to the person with untamed desires, with no self-control, no will to do what's right. And none of these things should describe God's people. Instead, Paul says, we need to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, every day we need to become more and more like our Savior. Our Savior. And you know what? Our Savior, he demonstrated, by the way, what it is to love other people, didn't he? And to love and pursue the will of the Father. Paul says we shouldn't be found thinking about how to satisfy the desires of our flesh, sin. We shouldn't be preoccupied in our minds with sin, how to indulge in it, how can we get away with it. No, our minds should be set on things above, believers. We need to be awake and active in our faith. And how do we do that? We fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. We focus on him so that we can become more like him. We seek him daily in prayer and in his word. We become an active and faithful part of the body of believers, which is here to strengthen one another. And then we choose to resist sin as we grow in our faith. If you're here this morning and Jesus is your Savior, 
then rest assured you will be in his presence one day. You will. Whether that's because of his return or because he calls you home, one day you will be with him, believer. But until then, how do we make the most of our time? How do we prepare for that day when we finally stand before him? How do we bring honor to our Savior? A couple of the ways we've seen this morning is that one thing we need to do is we need to be a loving people. So I'm going to encourage all of us believers to ask ourselves, what ways could we love other people better? And what areas of our lives or to what individuals are we withholding good or are we intentionally doing harm? Are we loving other people? Then let's ask ourselves if we are awake and growing in our faith. Does that describe us in our lives? When we say, that's me, I'm, I'm awake and I'm growing in my faith. If so, we'll know that that's the case because we're growing closer to Christ. We're resisting temptation. We grieve when we fall into sin. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. Does that describe us? Here's the truth this morning for each of us believers. It's this. Live like you will see the Savior at any moment so that you will strive to live a godly life. Live like you will see the Savior at any moment so that you will strive to live a godly life. I know that's not a groundbreaking statement to any of us, but if we were to do this, would we find things in our lives that need to change? I'm sure we all would, which means that we all should do this. Believers, there's no knowing when we will see Jesus. But when that day comes, I pray that we'll be ready. I pray that on that day, we would be able to say of our lives what is written in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, which says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I want you to know it's a joy when I can read that at a believer's funeral. But it can't be said of every believer. I pray that it will be something that can be said of us. Until we see Jesus, church, let's make sure that we are loving others and that we are awake and active in our faith. And church, let's go share our faith with someone this week. If you are here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, I want you to understand that at any point, your life could also be over. You don't know that you have more than today. The reality is you don't know that you're going to make it home today. And the question for you is, then what? When this life ends, then, then what? The Bible says, there are two guarantees for every person. The Bible says it's destined each person once to die, and then the judgment. In other words, friend, all of us are going to face the end of our life at some point, And then all of us are going to stand before Jesus. The question is, when you stand before Jesus, is he going to welcome you into heaven with open arms, or are you going to be separated forever from him in a place called hell? You need to understand that we all deserve hell for the things that we have done, those wrongs that we have committed. The good news is that Jesus paid the penalty for us when he died on the cross. He did that so we could be pardoned from that penalty of hell. And we can receive that pardon, we can receive forgiveness, we can receive eternal life if we give our life to Jesus Christ. Friend, after he was buried three days later, Jesus powerfully rose from the dead. He's standing in heaven right now waiting to forgive you, to bring you into his family and to save your soul. 
And if you've never made that decision, we want to give you the opportunity to do that before you leave. Would you pray with me? Friend, if that's where you're at, if you're here and Jesus is not your Savior, but you're ready to change that, then I want to encourage you, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're going through right now, understand that right now, Jesus is standing in heaven waiting to forgive you and save you. And if you want to receive that forgiveness, go to Jesus Christ in prayer right now. You can pray it silently. He'll hear you. But by faith, go to Him in prayer and admit to Him that you know you're a sinner. But that you know He died on the cross for you. That you believe He rose from the dead. And ask Him to forgive you of your sins. To be your Savior. Friend, give your life to Him. And I promise you on the authority of God's Word, Jesus will give you eternal life. Dear Heavenly Father, for those of us who have made that decision, who have given our lives to Jesus, help us to understand that at any moment, we could be standing before our Savior. And I pray that you would help us to desire to be prepared for that day so that we would go out when we leave this place and we would be a loving people. That we would be awake and active in our faith because we know that our enemy, the devil, is just waiting for us to get lazy to get sleepy in our faith so that He can attack us. Now help us to be on guard, to be growing closer to You, to putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And teach us as a body of believers to encourage one another in these things, to strengthen each other, to come alongside one another. Father, I pray that this would be a place where You are glorified. And I pray that if there is anyone here who still hasn't made that decision to give their life to Jesus, that they would come and talk to me during this final song, that they would talk to someone before they leave. And Father, I pray that as we leave this place, you give each of us an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.